The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning. Please open to Colossians chapter 3. In the Red Bible, it is 984. In the Children's Bible, it is 1458. Colossians chapter 3. We will read verse 17 through 21, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Lord God, I don't know about everybody else, but as I watch that video, it is way too easy to relate to it. (laughs) And uh, Lord God, we see that as you tell us to do everything in your name, the very first place you turn to is the home, Lord. And God, we come confessing that we often are our worst in the place that we should be our best. That we are often irritable, cranky, unloving, uncompassionate, and the place you have called us to be the most loving and most compassionate and most caring. Lord God, I pray today that as we walk through this passage that you would reveal to us the areas that we can grow by your grace for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Colossians chapter 1 through 3, Paul has outlined the majesty of Christ, that he is a sufficient Savior, and that he is a superior Savior, that he is Lord over all creation, that he is Lord over the church, he is Lord over redemption, he is Lord over his people. We get into Colossians 3, and Paul starts reminding us of our identity, that we were once dead, but now we are made alive in Christ, that we are his beloved chosen, holy people. And now he gets very practical. What does it look like to take the lordship of Jesus Christ home with you this morning? What does it look like to take your new identity in Christ and live it out as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a father or a mother? And so today he gets very practical on what it looks like to live out our new identity in the place that is our primary ministry. And so we're just going to walk through these commands that Paul gives to us today. But I want you to notice first, in verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is in the home that this command is first to be expressed, that we are to do everything, our parenting, our 
childing or whatever you would call that. We are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. And so let's see how that applies. First, he addresses wives. Paul, of course, starts with the easy and non-controversial one, which I'm so thankful for. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, I know as I read that verse, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Some of you, uh, your, your blood starts to boil your hands start to sweat. You're either looking for an exit door. You're, you're, you're holding yourself down so you don't get up and yell, what is this? Like, this is archaic. Some of you may be thinking, I really like this church, but now I got to leave it because of things like this. Whatever your understanding of submission is that, that you so violently react to, maybe it's not God's understanding of submission. As a matter of fact, maybe God hates your understanding of submission even more than you hate it. And so I want to take some time to focus on what does submission not mean? And then what does submission mean? Because I think this is something that the church and culture has misunderstood forever. And their sexism has always been a part of the church. It's been part of the culture. It's part of the workplace. And so what does God mean when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord? Well, first, let's list out what submission is not. Submission is not an isolated command for wives. God commands all of us to submit. First and foremost, we submit to God, but all of us submit to human authorities. If you're a child, you submit to your principal, you submit to your parents. If you're an adult, you submit to your boss or to to the, uh, to the project leader, all of us are called to su- submit to the government. And so all of us are called to submit to authority. It's not isolated just for wives. Secondly, submission is not a proclamation of inferiority. It's not an assessment of a woman's abilities or gifts or capabilities. It's not inferiority. We see this as we look to Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, and yet he was equal to the Father. And so it's not a proclamation of inferiority. Submission is not a declaration of cultural roles of women. In this passage, it says nothing about women must stay at home and do dishes and do child rearing and they must homeschool and they must do all. It it says nothing about that. In fact, when you look back in Proverbs and Proverbs 31, it describes an excellent wife. And an excellent wife is a woman who raises her children and goes out into the workplace and is even an entrepreneur. And so this is not declaring cultural roles. Fourthly, submission is not silence. Some have thought that to submit means that you don't say anything at all, that you don't respond when you see something wrong or when you disagree. It it doesn't mean that at all. Submission is not a license for oppression. Whether it be a husband or a boss or whoever it might be, if they do something evil and wicked against you, it is your obligation as a follower of the Lord to address them, to confront them on their sin. If they do not repent, then to have an intervention, bring friends. And then if you're in the church, to bring it to the church. Submission does not mean you are a doormat to be walked over. And finally, biblical submission to humans is never ultimate submission. Right here in this verse, it says, as is fitting to the Lord. And so your submission only goes 
as far as what God commands. If, if the authority over you, whoever might be, commands you to do something that is against the word of God, you have a higher submission to follow. And you have the obligation to disobey your human authority. And so a great example of that would be Daniel. If you remember the story of Daniel, he was a Jew who lived in the midst of the Babylonian captivity under the reign of King Darius. And Daniel was such a loyal citizen that Daniel was promoted to be a high official. And it said he promoted him because he had such an excellent spirit. He was a loyal, submissive, good citizen. And then King Darius signed an injunction that for 30 days, no one should pray to anyone, to any God, except to King Darius himself. And then we read on and it says that Daniel knew that the document had been signed. And immediately he went home and he prayed to the Lord as he had done previously. For that, he was thrown into the lion's den. But what you see here is Daniel understood that, yes, he was to submit to his governing authority unless he called him to do something that was against God's word. And at that point, he had to disobey his authority and submit to his ultimate authority, God. And so whatever human God calls you to submit to, you're called to submit with an excellent spirit, but only when it doesn't disobey the word of God. So that's what submission is not. And we could talk a lot more about it. But what does submission mean? What is submission? You know, so often we look at these passages and we want to find the loophole. So often we want to look at these passages and says, well, that doesn't apply to me or it doesn't apply to my marriage because of X, Y, and Z. I have all these stipulations and reasons why that doesn't apply to me. But here Paul says, wives, submit to your husband. So what is submission? Submission is surrendering to another's God-given authority for God's glory and our good. Let me read that again. Think of places in your life where God is calling you to submit. Submission is surrendering to another's God-given authority for God's glory and our good. In Ephesians 5.24, Paul expands on this and he says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So let me ask you, wives, what happens when there is a disagreement in your marriage? When there is a stalemate over an important decision? Maybe it's what jobs to take or not to take. Maybe it's to move or not to move. What happens in those situations? I hope that there is healthy discussion, long discussion, even a spirited discussion. I hope there is prayer. But ultimately, what do you do? Do you manipulate to get your way? Or do you recognize God's given authority to your husband and submit to him in thought, word, and deed? Again, this does not mean you're inferior. It does not mean that you are silent. It doesn't mean that you suffer justice and oppression, but you are acknowledging the order that God has put in the home. And for you, it is an act of sacrificial worship. I was looking at a blog this week, or I don't know, a webpage, and it is the secret to dance partnering. All right, the secret to dance partnering. And I'll just read to you what it says. It's, it's really interesting how it lines up with what we're talking about with the roles of husbands and wives. 
It says this, the most difficult thing to master in ballroom dance, salsa, tango, swing, Latin, or any other kind of partner dancing is not the steps. It's the interaction with your partner. You can see how this relates to marriage. (laughs) Lead and follow is the secret to getting two partners dancing smoothly together. It's simply impossible for two people dancing in close contact to move as one if they're making their own decisions, choosing their own timing, and doing their steps independently. They must coordinate their moves perfectly. And for that to happen, one person must be in charge. Mastering lead and follow well takes time and effort. It's easy if you have a regular partner because you can learn the right give and take together. Male beginners are often timid about taking control, especially if they're not 100% sure of the steps themselves. Unfortunately, that means female beginners give up trying to follow and start dancing their own steps. So the men aren't forced to learn to lead, and it becomes a vicious circle. At the other extreme, some men think leading means shoving. That's another difficult skill for the lead, learning how much pressure is enough and how much is too much. In Ephesians 5, it says... Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. If this is true, which I believe it to be, because as I talk to people who've gone through divorces, they say it feels like I was ripped in half. If two become one flesh, and you have two leaders going in different directions, it tears the unity apart. There can only be one captain of the ship. There has to be one with whom the buck stops. And what God tells us in this passage is that he has created an order and family in which there is this gospel dance in which the wife lovingly submits to her husband and the husband lovingly leads his wife. There are complementary roles. And so a submissive wife acknowledges the headship God has given to her husband, and she also follows her husband's headship as they do this gospel dance together. And then Paul turns to husbands. And this may look easier, but you'll see it's not. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let's take that second part first. He says, do not be harsh with your wives. There is this propensity of men to use their God-given authority in very ungodly ways. To use their temper, to use their intimidating speech, to use their intimidating presence to force their wives into a submission that does not glorify God at all. And what Paul says here is that we are not to treat our wives harshly. And so I guess husbands, to get very practical with that, how are you harsh towards your wife? Do you intimidate her by yelling at her, by by keeping score, by calling her names, by using manipulative techniques to get your way? Paul says there should be none of this among Christian men that we should not be harsh with our wives. And then Paul goes on to a more positive command. He says, husbands, love your wives 
husband's God-given authority isn't to be carried out harshly or selfishly, but lovingly and sacrificially. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes on to give us details about what it means for husbands to love their wives. In verse 5, in Ephesians 5, he says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? That we might know how a husband should love his wife. You see, our model is not our parents' marriage, although there might be helpful things to take from there. Our model for love is not Romeo and Juliet. Our model for how to love our wise men is how Christ loved the church. And so how did Christ love the church? Well, let me finish that verse. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ, our great love. Jesus Christ, out of great love for his bride, the church sacrificed everything for her. Sacrificed everything for you. Can you imagine from all eternity, Christ was in heaven, enjoying the bounty of heaven, enjoying the praise of angels, enjoying a sinless atmosphere where there is complete joy and no misery all the time. And he sacrificed all of that to be born in a dirty manger, to be ridiculed by sinful, selfish, dirty men, and ultimately to die on a cross. That's how you love your wife. Like Christ loved the church. At the cross, Jesus not only displayed to us sacrificial love, Jesus was the sacrifice of love. That we could have a relationship with God for all eternity. So when Paul calls husbands to love their wives, it's not an easy calling. It might be the most difficult calling you have on your life. To love your wife as Christ loved the church is a radical calling to kill your selfishness and serve your wife. Now, I know some of you here, some of you men are, are thinking, yeah, I, I agree. I should love my wife. But you don't know my wife. And Paul didn't know my wife. Yes, she looks very nice and sweet on Sunday mornings. But it's a different person when you get her home. She's stubborn. She's moody. She's manipulative. She's nagging. Not my wife, by the way. Just for the record, this never happens. She's difficult, right? Some of you might even say, you know what? To be honest, I don't even find my wife attractive. I don't even want to, I don't even want to be around her. Here's the thing. Jesus did not sacrifice himself for good people. Jesus did not love you when you were lovely. Jesus loved you when you were unlovely. Jesus gave his life for wretched, self-absorbed, self-serving, nagging men and women like you and me. He gave his life as a sacrifice to people who loved sin more than they loved him, to a rebellious people. And so you see Jesus' model of loving Christ, I'm sorry, Jesus' model of loving the church for us to love our wives means that we can add no stipulations to our love. 
We cannot say, I will love my wife if she does this. I will love my wife if she's in a good mood. I will love my wife when she does this. I'll love her when she puts away the laundry. I'll love my wife, fill in the blank. There are no stipulations because there were no stipulations when Christ loved you. We are called to love our wives unconditionally, sacrificially, just as Christ loved us. Robert McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary for 22 years. Under his leadership, the university flourished as they grew in graduation rate and seminary programs. He actually had a radio ministry as well. They expanded the campus facilities. He was a very powerful man for Christ. In 1990, he had a major decision to make. His wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's that had progressed to the point where she needed constant care. And this is what he says in 1990. I love the first line, so don't miss it. He says, I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one. And then he goes on. Muriel, his wife, now in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, become very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word, but it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. Do you see the gospel dance coming together? So if I cared for her 40 years, I would still be in debt. However, there is much more. It's not that I have to. It's that I get to. Because I love her very dearly. That was his resignation speech in 1990. For three years, he cared for his wife, feeding her, changing her, bathing her. In 1993, she completely forgot who he was. And for 10 more years, until she passed away, for 10 more years, he loved her sacrificially. He could have said, you know, I got many things. I have a radio program. I have a university. I can do all of these things for Jesus. But what he understood is what Jesus wanted him to do most was to love his wife. Who would want to submit to a guy like that? (laughs) Do you see the gospel dance that marriage is supposed to be? As a wife submits to her husband and the Lord as is pleasing to him. But the husband does all that he can to lay down his life for his wife and love her as Christ loves the church. And so Paul says that we should live for Christ in our home as wives, as husbands. Next, he goes on to children. Verse 20, read along with me. He says, children, obey your parents in everything for this 
pleases the Lord. Again, we see that God has implemented a structure into the church family that men are to lead their household well, not by domineering, not by getting their way, not by selfishness, but through loving and sacrificial service to their family. That wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And then the children are to obey their parents in everything. You know, this is not a complicated command to understand, kids, is it? Obey your parents and everything. But I think you understand that it is just about impossible to fulfill. God, what we learn here when he says, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. When you obey your parents, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult, it is pleasing to your Savior. He delights in it. It it gives pleasure to Christ when you obey your parents. I read this week that Arabian horses, they go through a rigorous training in the Middle East because they, they go through desert conditions and they're in the wilderness and a lot. And the final test after all of the training takes place is the trainer will take the horses and they will, they will, They will bind them up. They will make it so that they can't get to a water source, okay? And so for days, they'll be growing more and more thirsty. And after a few days of this, the trainer will let the horse go. And as soon as he lets the horse go, of course, it runs for the water because it is so thirsty. But as it gets close to the water, the trainer takes his whistle and he blows it, which is calling the horse back. And he waits to see, will the horse continue to the water or will the horse curb its passions, curb its desires and turn back in obedience to the master? Now, as we look at this, we might say that seems very cruel, but it's not unloving and it's not unfair because that horse will be with its master in the wilderness where obedience is essential for life. Kids, it is hard to obey your parents. Sometimes their rules, maybe most of the time their rules seem unfair. They maybe seem cruel. They maybe seem restricting. Maybe they don't even make sense to you. And yet here God says, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And so if you're here today and you live under your parents' household, I just ask you this. Where are you disobeying your parents? Secretly, where are you hiding from them? Maybe you have plans later today to disobey your parents or later this week. Maybe there are boundaries they put on electronic devices. Maybe there are boundaries they put on where you can go, what you can do, who you can see, how late you can be out at night. Where do you disobey your parents? What we learn here is that as you obey your parents, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense to you, this is pleasing to your Savior. Finally, he addresses fathers. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You know, it's interesting because this command could go to both parents, but Paul points out fathers because he's reminding us of the authority structure in the household and that the the, the husband and the father is, is responsible for the spiritual maturity of his house. And so he says to them, fathers, do not provoke your children. To provoke means to stir wrath in them, to stir anger in them. 
And usually what Paul is talking about here is a righteous anger. We see in the Old Testament this term of provoke used in Deuteronomy 4.25. We read, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger. And so what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3 is that we should not call our children, we should not provoke them to righteous anger through hypocrisy, through criticizing them, through whatever it might be. And if we do, we are called to go and repent to them and ask for their forgiveness. He says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. One commentator says, children should not be flattened but should be encouraged. And so does your discipline of your children dishearten them? Do you snap at them like I do? Do you criticize them in public? Do you demean them in unintentional ways? Do you raise your voice to get your way? This discourages children. It makes them flat and not alive and flourishing as God has called them to be. Holly Dunn is a country singer, and she sang a song, Daddy's Hands. And I actually think about this song quite a bit, um, just in the midst of parenting. And it goes like this. I'll read you an excerpt. It says, I remember Daddy's hands folded silently in prayer and reaching out to hold me when I had a nightmare. I remember Daddy's hands, how they held my mama tight and patted my back for something done right. There are things that I've forgotten that I love about that man, but I'll always remember the love in daddy's hands. And then it continues and the chorus goes like this. Daddy's hands were soft and kind when I was crying. Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. Daddy's hands weren't always gentle, but I've come to understand there was always love in daddy's hands. You know, I'm, I'm a 36-year-old man. And I can still remember as a child sitting on my father's lap, playing with his hand, remembering how enormous I thought his thumb was compared to mine. Those are sweet memories. And I'll ask this of moms and dads because it applies to both. How will your children remember your hands? How will they remember your tone? How will they remember your words? I'm... I'm guessing you guys know the power that a father and mother figure have in somebody's life. You know how it's influenced you. Will they remember a a parent where they could never do anything right for them? And so for the rest of their life, they're trying to prove themselves to their father. Will they remember a parent who was critical of them? Will they remember a parent who was too loose that never disciplined them out of love? How will they remember your hands, your words, your actions, your attitude. Will they say, you know what, my dad, he was just too busy for me. He had important work to do outside the house, and he was never home. There's this great story, and it's really quick, but Charles Adams was a 19th century political figure and diplomat, and he kept a diary. And one day, he entered this. He says, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son had a journal entry from the exact same day, and this is what he wrote. Went fishing with my father. The most wonderful day of my life. You cannot underestimate the power that a father and mother have in a child's life. 
You cannot underestimate the power of just simply showing up and loving your kids. Love your kids as your heavenly father loves you. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let me end with this. Douglas MacArthur was a nephew of the famous World War II general, and he served in the State Department when the Secretary of State called his home late one night. And as the Secretary of State called his home late one night, his wife answered, and she complained, saying, MacArthur is where MacArthur always is. Weekdays, Saturdays, Sundays, evening. He's in that office And so the Secretary of State, without a minute passing by, calls up MacArthur at the office. And he gives him this strict command. Go home at once, boy. Your home front is crumbling. Where is your home front crumbling? Where does it need to be shored up? Where do you need to be intentional to change your attitude, your behaviors, your calendar, your your finances. In ministry, we have this thing that we say frequently to one another as pastors, that your primary ministry is in the home. And if you don't take care of your primary ministry, your secondary ministry is worthless. Where do you need to shore up at home? Where do you need to love your wife better? Where do you need to submit to your husband better? Where do you need to obey your parents better? Where do you need to parent better? You know, we have a picture. Some of you here today have failed at these things, and you are ridden with guilt. There is forgiveness and grace at the cross, and there is a beautiful picture of a family in which God is our father, Jesus is our older brother, And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the family that God is calling us to cultivate in our home. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, as we head out on this holy endeavor as husbands and wives, as children, as parents, God, we need your grace. We need your grace in those, in those flashpoints where life is difficult, where we want to lash out at one another, where we want to exercise dominion, where dominion is in ours, where we want to rebel. Lord God, it happens so frequently. It happens daily. I pray that you would expose this to us, God, that we might worship you in our house by the way that we treat one another and that that might honor your name. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.